Good morning and um, welcome to Ordinary Life, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. I'm Bill Curley and this is Holly Headley. <laughs> and we were talking, we have been talking about what we're going to do next week. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you saw, but in the announcement slides, I put a title to next week. You did? I didn't see it. What was it? Creating an empowered and empowering community. Oh, I did see it. Oh, no, that was in, never mind. Yes. We're going to do that. Okay. What we're going to do is that we're going to follow up on some of our uh, impressions and responses to some of the questions and comments that you who attended Jackie Lewis's webinar had. And we're going to devote all of next Sunday to that follow up on Jackie Lewis, mm -hmm. I encourage you to go to the Ordinary Life website and under the resources menu item, there you can find a handout that she used during the Saturday and Sunday time with us called Erasing Racism, a Spiritual Practice. And we'll work a little bit from that too as we um, yeah. go into next Sunday. Yeah. So, yeah. So, how are you doing? I'm good. And you said to me that you wanted to say something about money? Well, yeah. So it's this time of year again um, where those of you who participate in Ordinary Life can submit a little request for funding for, um, for sorry, nonprofits and organizations that you are affiliated with that might be serving the underserved community in and around Houston. So between now and Thanksgiving, um, we'll have that form available that can be emailed to me. We'll send out an announcement via constant contact with the form attached. But be thinking about that and um, make requests for the nonprofits that you're affiliated with. The other piece of that is we can receive online donations on our website. You just click on the donate button, it'll take you to a form, and in the memo, write Ordinary Life, which allows us to give money away that you guys so generously do every year. And it also allows us to bring speakers to Ordinary Life, like Dr. Jackie Lewis and Michael Morewood, and soon... Jeremut Amuraku. Yeah. Cool. I'm getting practiced in saying his name. I yeah, hope I that when we say it to him, he'll be like, you got it. Yeah. Well, I'll talk to him. Um, after next Sunday. Next Sunday's the time change, isn't it? Uh, you know, I don't keep up with those things. Isn't it next Sunday's the time change? I don't remember until the night before. And then I, Apple's so nice, it, it resets everything for me. So I actually don't even have to think about it. I want to, um, and I'm going to announce this every Sunday until uh, after the time to do this. Come on, work for me. We want to invite you to go to the St. Paul's website and register for one of these two town hall meetings that will be coming up November the 15th, that's a Sunday at 4, no, Tuesday the 17th at 7. Uh, our senior pastor, Dr. Jeff McDonald, is going to be doing some updates about um, kind of what's going on and what we can anticipate. I have a hunch that one of the things on that uh, menu item is how we begin to approach the matter of reopening. I don't anticipate that St. Paul's will be open for worship until after, well after the first of the year, but there is a possibility that we can figure out a system where we can begin to have 
uh, small groups of people gathered in large spaces. So in the not too distant future, I don't know when, I don't have a date for this, but we are anticipating that there will be live regatherings of ordinary life. Not like it once was initially, but at some point we're going to be able to have groups of people gathered here, and that will be great. So as I said today, Holly and I are going to finish our tour through the Beatitudes next Sunday, Jackie Lewis, and then on the Sundays after that, we're going to continue uh, to work our way through the Sermon on the Mount. The passage right after the Beatitude <laughs> that we look at today is Holly Hudley's famous favorite Bible <laughs> passage. So. If I were to have a favorite, and it's and it's actually Eugene Peterson's translation of it that is my favorite. Uh, I love his stuff. Yeah, yeah. So uh, thanks again to Tim Leatherwood, John Watson, Olivia Watson, William Budge. They're the crew behind this that makes this um, <laughs> possible. And I want you to know that um, no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Holly. Yes. In our work together this week, I noticed that you, in your text, mention a magic trick. <laughs> I did allude to something being a little bit like magic. And, so I, thought and I was maybe noticing you have a card over there. I, no, I have more than one card. Okay. I thought it would be good to lead into what you're going to do uh -huh. by doing a magic trick. Okay. I hope it goes better than the last. I hope it does, too. <laughs> Okay. And uh, you notice I only have four cards here. I, well, I can actually only see you holding a bundle. I can't see yeah, how many. I, I, you'll see them in All a minute. All right, okay. I only have four cards here. Nobody's ever accused me of playing with a full deck. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, since you are a big Hogwarts fan, um, I want to ask you to use your imagination. And I couldn't bring a, I couldn't bring off. 52 cards. So in honor of your femininity, mm -hmm. I brought the four queens. Oh, good. And you know the... Uh, Not the... <laughs> you know the cards. The in the cards. Uh, they're spades, yeah. hearts, clubs, and diamonds. Yeah. So we have black cards and red cards. Would you pick one of those colors for me, black or red? Do I say it out loud? Yes. Red. Red. Get rid of the black. Leaves us red cards right here. Well, now I feel now, now, there are two red queens. There's uh -huh. the queen of hearts and the queen of diamonds. Uh -huh. The one that you pick uh -huh. is the one that I'm going to use. Hearts. The queen of hearts. Yes. Watch. No fancy moves, nothing. But when I spread these cards, only one card is reversed in this fan, and that's the queen of hearts. You must have known I was going to pick that one. How could I have known? I don't know. Can I see the other cards? Oh, you can. <laughs> but I was so confident that you would pick the Queen of Hearts that what I did was take it out of another deck uh -huh. so that this card is a different colored back. And I was so confident that you would pick the Queen uh -huh. of Hearts. Uh -huh. I told the other queens that to they stay could home? stay home. So. Can we do it again and I'll pick a different queen? Well, if we only had time. Ah, that must be like the one that people pick 9.8 times out of 10. It's all about what statistics. No, it's not. It's about <laughs> magic. You have to believe in magic. I want to begin uh, this time today by doing something I seldom do, 
And I want to read to you uh, the entirety of the Christian scripture where the Beatitudes are to be I just found. want to say I hate that I'm so predictable, but go ahead. <laughs> you, okay. could, you could rather be astounded that I'm such a good mind reader. <laughs> anyway, continue on with your lesson. I apologize. <laughs> okay, let's do this to reacquaint you. Uh, what you see on the screen are the uh, Beatitudes as traditionally heard in Scripture, the New Revised uh, Version, but I want to read them to you um, from Eugene Peterson's. And sometime I would like to get into the difference between uh, uh, the values in the Scripture that you see on the screen and what you're going to hear me read, mm. uh, because both are incredibly valuable. Uh, for a variety uh, of reasons. Here's Peterson's. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge, crowd, huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. This is what he said. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one who is most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart, put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate, eat, or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. For though they don't like it, I do and all heaven applauds. And know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. Mm. Good trouble. There is no reputable biblical scholar who believes that one day an, an itinerant Jewish mystical heal, healer, teacher by the name of Joshua, whom we call Jesus, went up on a mountain, which didn't exist in that terrain and said these words and the several hundred after them including the other aphorisms and stories that are in the collection we call the gospel of matthew nobody had a recorder nobody was there taking notes during his relatively brief ministry jesus said things over and over and over it's the way rabbis taught and these sayings of Jesus worked their way into the minds of those who heard him, not only into their minds, but also into their hearts. As I've said in here on numerous occasions, Jesus told parables. 
and his followers told parables about Jesus. Or to put it another way, a way really I like a little bit more, Jesus composed music. And sometimes he played his own compositions. He told a few close people. He shared his music with a few close people. And then they took those compositions and they went out and they played them using their instruments and their arrangements based on the crowd to whom they were performing. Um, now, I know that there are people who have such a high regard for the Bible and for Jesus that they probably don't care for what I just said. Um, they may not know how the writings in the Bible were put together. And anything that challenges assumptions that we have had about either of those two hot topics, about the Bible or Jesus, makes people feel very uncomfortable or maybe makes them think where they're hearing these things from is coming from some heretical source. I, I certainly know that people think that our talking about issues of social justice and, and racial injustice make people feel uncomfortable, and that's okay. That's why we're calling this time today the sacred responsibility of living an eccentric life. Hmm. I remember one time when my daughter was dating her, her husband, um, we were out to dinner, and he said to me, what... What do you want to do with your life? And I, I told him a story about Frederick Beekner's grandfather mm -hmm. who um, would throw, go out for a walk and throw his walking cane down the street and then walk and pick it up and throw it down the street and walk and pick it up. He's a character. Uh -huh. And I said, that's what I want to do. I want to be a character. And he said, I think you've already made it. <laughs> <laughs> my, my granny used to say, I just want to go to be, to put one foot in front of the other and walk each day. I think that's a pretty. Throwing the cane ahead of you adds a little eccentricity to that. <laughs> or doing magic tricks that's in church. Right. That's right. <laughs> so for over four months now, I hadn't realized it had been that long, Holly and I have been going through teachings in two of the sacred traditions to try to find some guidance for us in this shaky time, in this scary time, pandemic time, time of social unrest and racial injustice, the unveiling of racial injustice. And it seems to me, and I may be wrong, I hope I'm wrong about this, but it seems to me that the social divisiveness in our culture is growing instead of people coming together. You know, the kind of people that you are, the people who would be drawn to teachings in ordinary life are not typical religious people, I would put, put it that way. People probably already consider you eccentric. And I further believe that we eccentric people can make a difference in the world by holding up another view of how things might be. What both Buddha and Jesus did was amplify in their own ways about the central tenet of what I call the evolution of right religion. And that central tenet we know as the golden rule. Don't do to others what you would not want done unto yourself. Now, every one of these teachings that we have been doing in the last two months come directly from Jewish scripture. Um, I'm not saying that Jesus wasn't original. He told some amazingly original stories. But he was a Jewish mystical teacher in the prophetic tradition. And so he quotes the prophets of Amos and Joel and Hosea and Isaiah, uh, among others, to get his material. 
Now, whoever put together the sayings and stories that we have in the what we call the Gospel of Matthew was also Jewish. And as a matter of fact, he was so Jewish that he could not do what good Jews were supposed not to do, and that is say the word God. The, God, the word God was to be unpronounceable. And so instead of saying the word God, uh, when it came to talking about uh, what we have heard Jesus refer to as the kingdom of heaven, a uh, kingdom of God, Matthew put in the kingdom of heaven. And that has done such a disservice to the Christian movement from the very beginning because it made people think that the kingdom of God was off out there somewhere, a place that you got to, rather than a place that we live in and speak from. Mm. So I want to insert here, and then I'm going to shut up and let Holly have it, but um, you remember Michael Morwood being here. It turned out that Michael Morwood knows this man, Daramut Amurku. They're in the same spiritual formation group together. Uh, Daramut lives in um, Dublin. And uh, I asked Michael if he could get me in touch with Amurku, and we have exchanged emails back and forth and have agreed to talk sometime after the election, after next Sunday, after the time change, whenever that is. In Europe, it may be a different time than, than ours. I want you to read this book. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a hard book to read. No. And read it. He's a very prolific man. He's written a number of books. Go visit his website and see the books that he's written and programs that he offers because he's going to be here sometime in the not too distant future. He has convinced me in this book that Jesus himself mm -hmm likely never said the phrase kingdom of God. And you have to read it to see his argument about that, but it makes perfect sense to me. And what Daramut talks about is that Jesus created a community that empowered people to go out and empower other people. And that's what eccentric people can do. And it's what we need right now is an empowered, empowering community. Mm -hmm. There's several people I'll talk about today that also called the, the beloved community, right? Mm -hmm. um, one thing I noticed, and I, I often when we get, go through the Beatitudes do read the sort of traditional translation and Eugene Peterson's translation. I have never put them side by side and looked at it one at a time. But as I was following along with you, Eugene Peterson's translation seems to all have to do with the falling away of the separate self, mm -hmm. the falling away of the false self. So it, it just sort of came clear to me, right? I Our, thought about yeah, that. yeah, that it's all about getting right with your inside world, and then we can sort of do justice, love, mercy, etc. So let yeah. me let, let me throw in here, and I yeah. hope I don't run us over, but let me throw <laughs> in here. I, in, in, in another new book that I'm reading right now called Zero Theology, um, which is challenging, I'll put it that way, mm -hmm. um, but it's just really, it's so appealing to me. The author uses an example. He says, suppose somebody wrote you a, a postcard telling 
on that postcard everything they love about you. They filled up every available space. Well, except for a postcard is only like well, that Well, okay, but it's every, <laughs> every available space. Big postcard. Okay. <laughs> and it says, this requires extra postage. All right, the big postcard. And you got that in the mail. And then the next day, you got one from somebody who said, words cannot express what I love about you. Mm -hmm. Which one would you value the most? And they both have value. Mm -hmm. That's a tough one to answer. So Eugene Peterson fills up the postcard. Mm -hmm. And it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. It's rich and it's poetic. And the other one, just here it is. Mm -hmm. I like that. Ah, that's an interesting comparison. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it that way either, but the, it is a hard one to choose from, and both provide value. So when I think about this beatitude, and specifically as we've talked about all of them, um, these last weeks we've talked about the beatitudes as a ladder, and especially Bill, you've used that analogy quite a bit. But this one, um, blessed, you're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom is like, on the same rung as blessed are the peacemakers to me. Because it, it, it essentially said the peacemakers will be persecuted. Peacemakers are those who reconcile quarrels. It's like a magic trick because they have the appearance of neutrality and diplomacy, but they're actually taking a side, a really strong stance on the side of peace. And the side of peace is almost always against the interests of the empire. The empire enforces peace, which is very different than making peace. So that's really what to say order. The empire enforces order, sometimes by violent means. And this is a kind of control. Remember this picture I showed last week. This is a gun called the peacemaker. There are also, as Bill pointed out, missiles called peacekeepers. That is also a kind of mind trick. Um, there's a different word you can put in there for trick. But there's no sense in this logic uh, that violence is peacekeeping or peacemaking. Similarly, if we take a good hard look at history and look beyond the illusion of the power center, which Jesus questioned, this so often seems ordered, which is not, again, to be confused with peace. We'll see how much slavery, oppression, killing, Torture, imprisonment, and the like have existed around the edges of the empire or around the edges of order to keep up this veneer of peace. The people inside the edges feel the illusion of order and therefore think it's peaceful. But to maintain the power and comfort for a few inevitably sacrifices the power and the comfort of the many. Over time, we've seen those who march peacefully to speak out against the harmful ways of the empire and they've been persecuted. Peacemakers don't fit the image of the empire and often get scared into submission. And this fear of persecution often paralyzes those of us who might otherwise want to be peacemakers. And our paralysis makes us complicit with the empire even when we're not directly working with it. When we get paralyzed, we're disempowered by this disease of fear. Jesus warned us of this. We will be hated from all sides when we work outside of the system. So there's a counter magic trick, I think, to be done here, to disrupt the systems from within. Hold them accountable. Use the power that you do have, your voice, your privilege, your race, your wealth, your gender, to speak truth to power, to keep the waters moving, as, I might, as I'll get into that analogy later. Martin Luther King 
whose work I've been reading these last weeks and have been really inspired by because I'm surprised and a little dismayed at how relevant so much of his writing still is. He's much more radical than we've made him out to be in our sort of need to accept this man who talked about um, peace as the way or white and black holding hands as the way. But what we miss sometimes is that he had a really strong agenda in order to get to the place of peace. And it involved taking care of those in poverty. It involved taking care of those on the outside. It involved taking care of those who had never been represented by the empire. And he writes, the white moderate is more devoted to the sense of order than to justice, prefers tranquility to equality. Peacemakers are disruptive, not violent. Peacemakers insist on justice, not power. So these beatitudes that we have been talking about now for two months, I hope you can take advantage of maybe going to the website. They'll be up on the website on Tuesday morning. Um, maybe print, print out the, the overhead that has all of them on one thing and put it in a place where you can see it on a regular basis. Maybe even memorize them would not be a bad spiritual practice. Each one of these Beatitudes talks about what behaviors we need to put in place to be on what Jesus calls the right track. And later on in Matthew, in this Sermon on the Mount, he'll talk about there's a narrow gate and straight path and there's a broad, easy path. And this is what puts us on the right path at the very beginning. And as any good rabbi would do at the end of saying all of these things about what is required to be on the right track, he says, now this is what it's going to cost you. So one of the things I think it's hard for us to keep in mind when we read the teachings of Buddha or when we read the teachings of Jesus is that they did not live in any shape, form, or fashion in the world in which we live. In almost no way, politically, economically, socially, educationally. You've heard Holly talking here in the past about how the economic and social structure was like a pyramid with those in power and privilege at the top and everybody else eventually at the bottom. And Jesus and most of the people, now there were some notable exceptions, but most of the people to whom he spoke were on the bottom of that pyramid. They, they were not only poor, but they were powerless. So being eccentric, what I mean by this is that in order to have a truly religious life, a true religious life, not a religiosity life, We've got to be willing to step outside of the belief paradigm into a relationship paradigm, a relationship with the sacred and a relationship with, with each other. Um, these people that Jesus spoke to were not only poor, they were power, powerless, they were part of the expendables. Um, John the Baptist, Jesus, James, Peter, and others who saw what the world would be like if relationship, compassion ran the show, they were not given Nobel Peace Prizes for their work. They were executed because of what they said and did. 
to be in a right relationship with the sacred and with the community is going to put us at odds with a lot of people. And this is something that comes easy to no one. I can tell you, as someone who has had a foot in professional ministry for about 50 years now, maybe longer, it's much easier to be a chaplain who comforts people when, when hurting things happen than it is to be a prophet who stands with a finger and says, thus saith the Lord kind of thing. One of the things I think is also true about all of us, all of us, I don't care how liberal and progressive you think you may be, is that we are all inherently and reflexively conservative. And what I mean by that is we want to secure and pr pr protect what is familiar to us. We have a way of life that we like and that benefits us in a lot of ways and we don't want that to be disrupted. No one delights in going into the dark of the unknown. I have always been convinced that people are hesitant to pick up a daily sitting meditation practice because they fear what will happen when nothing happens. That's, <laughs> that's, that's so what, true. That's what meditation <laughs> yeah. is. Yeah. So both Jesus and Buddha talked about the importance of having the mind of a child, the mind of a child that is curious and open and unafraid. And the way that I am putting it today is that every time we circle the wagons and, and try to stay safe, to step outside the, the belief paradigm, if we don't step out of the belief paradigm, we stifle creativity or worse, we, we tolerate injustice. Um, you know, we want to be considered okay with our peers. I'll give you a really crude example. Uh, if you're dating someone and on the first date they pick their nose, <laughs> that's the end of that. So we use that with our sons. We're like, you know, you're never going to get a second date if you pick your nose at the dinner table, if you put your whole face in your bowl as you eat. So does it work, do you think? I do think okay. that. It, right. sure. I'll keep telling him then. <laughs> but, but after you get in a relationship with that person, and I'm going to say it's a he because this is, I think, a guy thing. <laughs> And, and he, you married him. I have him. other tactics. <laughs> and you married to him, and he picks his nose. The response is, oh, well, he's good to the kids. <laughs> oh, guys pick their noses. <laughs> yeah. So every time we circle the wagons to stay safe, we stifle creativity. Or worse, we begin to tolerate injustice. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm trying to make a point right now is that it's natural. Maybe even, uh, Holly can speak to this more than I can, maybe even it's part of human nature to protect a position once we occupy it and feel that it's ours, that it benefits in some way. Now again, keep in mind the people in Jesus' audience. Most of what they made went to the government. Most of them owned nothing. They could be arbitrarily put to death for petty crimes or just to prove an example to others, um, the religious institution oppressed people. Further, it also taxed them in order for them to be considered in good standing with God. So my hunch is, is that when the original audience heard these words of Jesus about being persecuted, it wasn't that big a deal for them. They were already getting the short end of the stick. So they could say, you know, what do we have to lose? Mm-hmm. 
we're in a different category. They were already being persecuted for no reason, so living a life that went contrary to the rules of the game didn't seem like that big a deal. I think they may have thought something like, if we open our lives to the love of God, to see how God sees, to be kind to our enemies, patient with strangers, as this man is teaching, maybe God will permeate our lives, and who knows what might happen. It might be worth the risk. Mm -hmm. So over and over in human history, those who have gotten fed up with being oppressed have exploded in ways that have turned entire societies upside down. This is what Jesus is teaching. And the establishment got it, and they got rid of him because of it. Abandoning demeaning security which causes misery and unhappiness to us and or to others, and choose instead to live lives of love and compassion, that can cost us more than we can imagine. For us, I think that means uh, living out the Beatitudes, um, which we have been looking at. Thank you. And uh, that means growing up and growing into our true identity. And it means living inside this empowered, empowering community that we have begun talking about and that we will be talking about more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I mean, just coming back to this metaphor, I think of water that I brought up for a second or carrying water. Um, there's so many voices to braid together here, but specifically, I want to focus on a couple. Um, one is Dr. Jackie Lewis, who is with us. I think she's a direct descendant of Howard Thurman and his idea of the beloved community, who is a direct descendant of Jesus's view of the beloved community. Um, and then Howard Thur- Thurman, who, via, who I sort of via this beautiful podcast with Reverend Otis Wood, who Jackie told us was a friend of hers. Um, And then a third new friend of mine named Luana Kembro. She is a weaver, a planter, and a water carrier. And that image of the water carrier, I just want to lift up that she's who I have in mind as I talk about it. So thank you for that image, friend. Um, All of us are containers of sorts. And our body is, in fact, 70% water. The planet is about 70% water. So we are meant to be fluid. And I think one of the questions as you were talking is like, as our views, ideas, and outlooks on the world strengthen, are they strengthening to be larger containers or more constricted containers? Are we carrying more water? Are we trying to hoard the water, keep it, (laughs) right? And I, I, I think the other question is, are we going to be passive or active in carrying that water? So can yeah. I put in a shameless plug here? Please, yeah. Right after this class today, if people go on to the St. Paul's website and do the live stream, they can hear a sermon that I'm giving. Uh-huh. It's a magic trick that I can be in two places at once. Yeah. Well, I haven't gone to exa- church. Yet. I don't use the image water carrier because I didn't know it. Yeah. But it's exactly what I'm saying. I got this from Carl Jung. Mm-hmm. The issue is, does our spiritual work cause us to be enlarged beings? Mm-hmm. And does it call us 
to bring enlarged lives mm -hmm. into the world. Does it constrict or expand? Right, absolutely. Right. Yeah. So in Jackie's words last weekend, she asked us, and, and many of you participated in that chat, what do we imagine for the future? This is an active question. It requires our participation. And it, we, it makes us think of water as a shaper of canyons and forests and mountains, right? So Howard Thurman, who was a mystic, a teacher to many civil rights activists, including Martin Luther King. He was a builder of the beloved community. He set out to open a church in San Francisco that was multiracial, interfaith, and in the 1940s, that was radical. Um, he offers a meditation in which he asks along that vein to consider what type of spirit are you? Are you a reservoir? Which collects water to be dispensed at a later time, so it holds the water, and then releases it gradually over time. Are you a swamp? Here is where water is held with no outlet. Water comes into the swamp and it sits. And so often it creates disease. Or are you a canal and a river, which is in motion and always feeding into something else, something larger, and I might add again, rivers create canyons. So you decide a reservoir, a swamp, or a river. Silence on the issues of injustice is a swamp. It stagnates process or progress. The call for just a little more patience, just wait a little bit longer is a reservoir. Let's hold what we have and then let it go a little bit at a time. So I'm wondering what it would be like to grab a bucket, to scoop the water as we go and carry it, to feed the rivers, not the swamps. If we take up our buckets, there will be those who try to stop us, but the beautiful thing is that with enough water carriers, we can continually fill them back up again and never grow thirsty. No one ever has to carry too much water on their own. About 15 years ago, uh, you, some of you might remember that um, the class, we had a presentation by Don Thomas who told us about the Global AIDS Interfaith Alliance, and after that presentation, I said, I wanna go, I wanna go to Malawi, so I went. <laughs> Um, and well, our class once supported the, the creation in, uh, of a medical bus there that we ended up calling Edward's bus after a little boy that I wanted to bring home with me who was so dear. During that time though, I visited many villages and microfinancing projects run mostly by women. Many of the village women had flat spots on their heads worn down by carrying water buckets. They did this with ease or seemingly so. A group of them would go to the water source in the morning, traveling sometimes miles by foot to gather the water for the day. And then they carried it back, resting it when they needed to and passing it along when necessary. I tried, so this is a, a, an actual picture of me with a group of women who had a milking program in a village in Malawi. And um, I tried to carry this jug on my head and it was hard. It was barely full when I tried it and it kept falling over and I couldn't walk straight. And I tried it again, nearly empty. But because they knew the water or the milk was too precious for me to spill, they kind of gently took it back and laughed and laughed at me with encouragements of, you'll get it eventually. And then the woman in the front right corner with the scarf over her head, she showed me the worn flat spot on top of her head that revealed her sacrifice over the years. Mm. I don't want to romanticize this sacrifice because it is due to inequity and lack of infrastructure that keeps women like these in, in poverty. 
So this is for whom we must carry the water. I was just learning then how to be a water carrier, and I'm still striving to be one. To go back to Howard Thurman, and this references also one of my favorite contemporary poets, Ross Gay, he tells a story about trees. When Thurman was a boy, there's a story that goes, he watched an elderly man planting a pecan tree. He inquired of, of this man, sir, you will not live long enough to eat these pecans, to eat this fruit. Why are you planting it? And the old man paused and he answered to the young Thurman, son, all of my life, I've been eating fruit from trees I did not plant. It's my job to plant for somebody else. A tree may not harvest for 200 years in some cases. Water feeds the trees over time, only when it is carried. So we must plant the trees and water them. And this is how we create and pass along the beloved community so that our children's children's children can eat the fruit. This is the tree that was envisioned by Jesus, I think, who passed the water to the likes of Howard Thurman, to Martin Luther King, to Jackie Lewis, to my friend Luana, who's passing it to us. We have been given the water. What will we do with it? Pass it along or keep it and store it? When we work for peace, we are outside of the empire. We will not be admired by it. In fact, we could be called subversive, unpatriotic, maybe even a communist. You will be called a whole variety of words that seek to undermine what you're trying to do. In short, you will be persecuted. But when you work for justice, steadily passing the water buckets, you are bending that arc of time, that proverbial arc of time, toward justice. It is disruptive, and many people will have their hackles raised because it dramatically differs from the work of the empire. It is kingdom building. This is what my friend Casey calls getting in someone's kitchen, but blessed are those who get in other people's kitchens for the cause of justice because you will know the kingdom of heaven on earth. We'll not only carry the water, but we will drink, and we will help others drink, and it will give us life. It seems like a rather grim outlook to hold these strong, expansive convictions to carry the water. Just before Jesus' time, around 399 BC, Socrates was persecuted for corrupting the young, for teaching them to think outside the box. Now we use the Socratic method in almost every academic setting as a way to discuss and evolve ideas. The empire was wrong about him. A couple hundred years later, around 30 AD, Jesus was executed for his vision of a new society in which all people could gather around the table of kinship. He said, you know, I think this kingdom of God could actually be here on earth. I think it could be greater than Caesar. And though we have not caught up to his vision, by our sated we beliefs, we declare the empire wrong. In 1633, Galileo was sentenced to life in prison for being so bold as to declare that the earth moved around the sun instead of the other way around. He challenged the earth-centric universe, and he stuck to his guns. And again, the empire was wrong and later recanted its position. And in 1968, Martin Luther King was shot because he envisioned a world where black folks were equal to and worthy of the same rights and privileges as white folks. Again, the empire was wrong and we're still working to fulfill his legacy. Persecution by definition is oppression for holding certain beliefs or opinions. I want to say that these opinions that people are persecuted for are usually radical and a challenge to the social order. The examples I gave, they were called extremists, rebels, crazy, eccentric, 
in their time. We revere them now. I think we could say of these four radicals all these years later, truth does not cease to exist because it is ignored, denied, or scorned. This is a quote by Aldous Huxley, but this hand-scrawled sign hung in a small library at a boys' school in Malawi, which I also visited. These boys and these four men I just men mentioned were pursuers of truth. So what truth do we need to stand for now that might be called ridiculous or radical? A hundred years from now, how will we stand for it to be evaluated? Remember, no one questions the heliocentric universe now. There's a risk involved in standing for justice, but I promise you there is also community in it. To get to these ideas, to a new kind of heliocentric universe, if you will, we've got to push past fear. Fear desires order, and love desires justice. The bolder we get about standing for a just world, the more companions we find along the way. When Jackie asked us to imagine what we want for the future, so many in the chat answered things like, along the lines of an inclusive, loving world where everyone can just be. This will not happen magically. It won't happen without our participation as well as our enlarged compassion. We must all be water carriers. There's a term, the bucket brigade, which comes from a primitive firefighting technique in which buckets of water are passed hand to hand from the nearest water source to the site of the fire. This is a stamp of a bucket brigade. Saving lives required this kind of collaboration and diligence. If one person along the way walked away or dropped the bucket, they had to start over again at the beginning of the line. But this is what we must do. There are many, many single-sided narratives in American history, and kids as early as preschool get presented with them. I bet many of us could raise our hands to the, and say that we participated in like uh, wearing paper cutouts of colonists or pilgrims' um, collars and paper bags looking like um, Indians. And the narrative was that the pilgrims and the Native Americans sat down and had a peaceful feast. When in fact, that the Native Americans were seen as savages and needed to be converted, and their land was taken and parceled out to the colonists. My fifth grader, my kids are biracial, who has both European and African ancestry, was given an assignment to write a letter to his English family as to which colony he recommends they should move to, Plymouth or Jamestown. I did not know how to advise him on this assignment. The assumption was that he was <laughs> that white. white that he would be writing to his European white family to say, here are these two colonies, here's why you should move to one. And we've talked to our kids a lot about you know, history and um, sort of different narratives of history. There is a narrative of the Native American, there is a, native of, a narrative of the colonists, there is a na narrative of those who were enslaved from Africa. He actually does have an ancestor who lived in Jamestown in, in 1620. He also has ancestors who were enslaved. How can he write a letter without abandoning one part of himself? So to write it, he had to dismember a piece of himself, an aspect of his identity. He must forget one part of himself. I have used this analogy before, but part of justice work, of being peacemakers, is to remember, to put ourselves back together again, and to make room for others to show up as their whole selves so that they don't feel dismembered. 
When I say something about curriculum or education inequalities as a mother or as an educator, as a person who cares about inclusion, I have to work past this fear of what the in-group will think of me. It's always there. I have to work past the fear of persecution. But the taste of the water of speaking in integrity with my values is so much sweeter than being disliked. It's hard to be disliked, too, or to be talked about, or to be called too sensitive. But I've always found community on the side of justice. Caleb's teacher was wide open to hearing his perspective. She received the water. I don't think I would have thought this at a young age, but my faith in the teachings of Jesus had been, have been strengthened by my growing commitment to justice work. Regardless of the difficulty of carrying the water, these buckets that are moving along person to person, or of speaking up about issues of inclusion and injustice, we need to find the strength to stay in the room, to keep showing up. We can't leave our values at the door just because they're upsetting or challenging to some people. Historically marginalized people have been in this room forever. Some of us are just waking up to the fact that we're in it with them and that maybe we in fact helped build it. It's a bit uncomfortable, but I think there's an opportunity to turn toward one another with a gaze of understanding and solidarity. So this is how my son was a peacemaker this last week. He was a small healer, how he is living an eccentric life that challenges empire thinking. He answered his assignment with this. Dear Mr. Chandler, I am from the future and I am biracial. I am a distant relative, the son of your great times a lot grandniece. I wish I could have told the early colonists not to use slaves. You didn't need slaves to have a good farm. You should give your workers money for all the hard work and unite with them to build up a civilization where black people and white people could have lived in peace. I'm proud of both of my heritages, but me and my black ancestors need you to know, <sighs> need you to know we are whole people, even though you thought we were not. Sincerely, your distant relative, Caleb Lewis Hudley. Well. Way to carry the water, son. <laughs> That's powerful. Yeah. Um, so if an 11-year-old can write this with conviction, I think we adults can follow suit. I think we can show up, too. Can we stand for his vision of wholeness, for his right to be seen as whole? Brian Stevenson said that the most lasting and devastating result of three-plus centuries of slavery and Jim Crow in America was the pervasive belief that blackness equates with inferiority. This is the thinking my son challenges at 11. He says, don't leave half of me out of the history books because I'm here. Don't call me half a person because I'm here. I know he's not watching right now. I'm sorry, Bill. He doesn't usually come to ordinary life. But I want to say to him directly, I see you. I love you with my whole heart. <clears throat> wow. Caleb, that was a wonderful letter. <laughs> And if you did come to Ordinary Life, you could see some cool magic tricks. <laughs> could say that. Jackie Lewis used a phrase, a word, that she called, remember, <clears throat> remembering when she was growing up, getting, did she call it raced, getting raced? She, yes, yeah. Does that happen to your kids? You know, it happens in subtle ways. I think that the use, the direct use of the N-word is thankfully not as regular 
as it would have been in her childhood. Um, but they get it in other ways, like the what are you question, or why is it, and, and, and these are ways that, that um, can succeed in making a child feel other or different. Mm -hmm. Children have come up to me and said, why is he brown and you're white and you're his mommy? And my answer is, well, his daddy is black and I'm white, and so our kids are somewhere in between. And kids normally are like, okay, <laughs> let's go play, you know. But they need an answer like that, that just normalizes mm -hmm. this, that skin tones vary from the lightest to the darkest. And even if you're in a, uh, a group where everybody's more or less all in the same racial, social, economic group, kids can be vicious to each other. They can, and I, and I think one of the things that happens in the education system is that we as adults who are facilitating these classrooms get afraid of addressing it. We, you know, I grew up in, in an era when, we, when um, this sort of colorblind 90s area that it, we had to whisper the word black. Mm -hmm. And that shouldn't have been. You know, we shouldn't have dismissed differences as if they didn't exist. We were so afraid of kind of doing wrong by the civil rights movement that we kind of went in the other, other direction and pretended that differences didn't exist. As a matter of fact, during that period of time, and this is one of the things that Jackie addressed and we'll come back to next week, it was actually taught in white liberal communities, I don't see color. That is, and it is damaging. That is one of the most damaging teachings that we've gotten. Because if I don't see color, I don't see the bright yellow of your shirt today. Yeah, right. You don't see the sparkling gray coming into my hair. Or her, right? her answer was when she you said don't somebody, see me. you don't see me. Yeah, yeah, and so, so I think to normalize this, this, this conversation, we're gonna stumble. The hope is, and Dr. Cleve Tinsley always says this, that we fall forward. We're gonna stumble, we're gonna mess up, we're gonna be awkward, but keep showing up in the room because that matters. The, the, the important thing, and I got this from uh, Martin Luther King Jr., the important thing is that we move the needle, no matter how far, in the direction of compassion. And this is where I think um, he also says, you know, so it was a Unitarian minister who said the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. So it was sort of like, it just happens. Martin Luther King said, yes, and time is neutral. So I like this image that we can become time benders. Yeah. We, can, we can participate in that time bending. And I, I'm gonna make a reference to Chicken Little in a minute. <laughs> but I, I, I wanna say that I think the stakes of doing an embodiment of the kind of thing that we've been talking about for, for four months now, but the, the Eightfold Path, and these Beatitudes, I think it is critical that we take on serious embodiment of these things, else the arc of our society is not moving toward a more compassionate, inclusive, and just thing. It's going just the opposite. And I, I, I can remember um, times in the last four or five years where I have said something like that to my very um, liberal friends. I was a Jewish friend, he died a uh, year before last, but was, 
um, great scholar of Abraham Heschel, and he was a liberal Jewish uh, person. And he would kind of dismiss what I would say by saying, oh, we've lived through worse than this. We lived through the Nixon Agnew period. We lived through mm. something. And I, I want to keep saying, yeah, but not all societies have always moved in the direction of inclusiveness and yeah. that culture and that yeah. sort of thing. So how do people in our time regard the claims of religion in our time, the kinds of things that Holly and I have been talking about. Well, frankly, most are fairly indifferent. They don't belong to any religious group. They have no religious practice. It doesn't fit their life or lifestyle. Some people absolutely reject the religious claims because of a variety of reasons. They're intellectually untenable, they're turned off by the bad behavior of some individuals or groups that have used religion to do heinous things. Others want religion to confirm their political beliefs. And then there are those who are willing to get out on the edge of things and be eccentric. They're willing to talk about matters of justice and share stories like Holly has today of uh, her son. So these are the three ways that we have to respond to the, the message that Jesus is offering. We can be indifferent, reject, or we can offer courage. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness in Judaism, Righteousness always stands for justice. It's not about being good, not about being pure, not about being right and on the inside of things. It's about doing acts of justice. Remember, prophetic Judaism is about walking humbly, doing justice, and loving God. That's what this is about. And the point is that anyone who tries to go against the grain, who is committed to this religious eccentric life, is going to get more criticism than praise initially. I don't know how this got lost on the majority of people who claim Christianity as their home religion, but the central symbol of the Christian religion isn't a star of Bethlehem, isn't an empty tomb, isn't a rainbow, isn't a butterfly, it's the cross. These teachings of Jesus that we have been studying can increase our awareness of where and how we live. Do we embrace the poverty of knowing we own nothing? Do we mourn over the awareness that nothing lasts? Do we get our identity only from sacred mystery and know that who we are is who we are in that mystery, no more, no less? Do we hunger for justice? Are we focused? Are we peacemakers? Do we back off from our faith to avoid getting into trouble? In short, where is home for us? Where, where do we live? As I said earlier, I don't want to be a chicken little screaming at the skies falling, but I am deeply concerned with what I see going on with a fairly large proportion of the American population. During the early 30s and 40s, Perfectly ordinary, decent, smart people living in Germany 
cheered Hitler and obediently played their part in the invasion of neighboring countries. They killed people they personally had no grudge against. They assisted in the Holocaust. Now there were some few who resisted who had become after that heroic. I'm thinking of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who wrote an outstanding book that's worth rereading in our time called The Cost of Discipleship. Bonhoeffer was executed for his participation in a plot to overthrow Hitler and his resistance to Nazism. To say that there's not much difference between some of our population and that population in Germany is to risk being considered heretical or eccentric. To keep bringing up, for example, specific examples like children who have seemingly been forever separated from their parents mm. at the border, forever. Um, you keep bringing that up, you're not going to win any popularity contest. Yet in this teaching, Jesus is offering the prophets as an example for living. Now, I don't know any church anywhere that would welcome a prophet to preach from its pulpit every Sunday. For one thing, most of the churches we are familiar with are made up of relatively affluent people, and affluent people don't like to have somebody get in their kitchen. <laughs> um, but the primary themes of the prophets were how the indifference of the religious and politically powerful toward the suffering, how, how that indifference was wrong in the eyes of God. Don't take my word for it. Read the Hebrew scriptures. So going forward, Holly and I, after next Sunday, are going to pick our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And we will hear Jesus say that those who follow his teachings will be like the salt of the earth <laughs> and the light of the world. He also says that those who have enough faith will be able to move mountains. <laughs> and it was years before I understood. That didn't mean physical mountains. It meant mountains of caution mountains of disbelief, mountains of fear. Jesus did not say, go into all the world and keep your blood pressure down and I will make you a well-adjusted personality. We expect perks. We don't want life and faith to cause us discomfort. We really don't want to be seen or perceived as eccentric. And that means that we can so easily fall into a world of falsehood and illusion. I heard a story about this minister who was passing a group of teenage boys who were sitting on the church lawn. And as he passed, he asked them, what are you guys talking about? And one of them said, oh, nothing much. We're just seeing about who can make up the biggest lie about his sex life. And the minister reacted in shock and said, I am ashamed of you. At your age, I never even thought about sex. And they both all said in unison, you win. <laughs> fall into religious illusion and dishonesty. If you mm -hmm. look at the Beatitudes again, you will see that two of them, the first